earlier this week, I was having a conversation with someone. I don't know if you have these sayings or phrases that have made their way into your vocabulary or not, but one of the things I say periodically is I use the phrase, well, that's like a catch-22. And I was talking to someone, and I said, well, you know, it kind of is like a catch-22 situation. And they literally leaned in, they said, do you even know what that means? And I said, not really, but I think this sounds like the right time to use it. Uh, my understanding with a catch-22 is the situation, no matter what decision you make, is going to have a bad income. Uh, outcome. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's how, how I use it. And it got me thinking that sometimes in life there are choices or decisions that no matter which side you choose, it's kind of a downer. It's just, just the reality of life that's hard. But on the opposite side, there are definitely times where there's good options, that you can choose this or that. And that's where we're going to start this morning. I'm going to give some crowd participation. Uh, I'm just going to give you what I believe in, in these options. Both are good choices. So, so we're going to start here this morning. You can feel free to shout, get your arms warmed up a little bit, that type of stuff. Uh, so here's the first one. When it comes to consuming your chicken. Team Chicken Strips, show of hands, a hoot holler if you're Team Chicken Strip. Okay, what about Team Chicken Nugget? Like how many guys are like, yo, Team Chicken Nuggets, okay? Maybe 50-50-ish there. Okay, what about this one? Here's the next one for us is when you're consuming cake. Okay, there's regular cake and then there's cupcake, which is the same thing, right? Just a smaller version, okay? It was just kind of like, do you want to eat it with your hands or a fork? So, so hoot and holler if you're Team Cake. Team cake, okay, okay. What about team cupcake? All right. Now, the, the, the trick with a cupcake, I don't know if you've seen this, you rip off the bottom, put it on top, you make you a cupcake sandwich, okay? I'm telling you, it's glorious. If you've never tried it, try it this afternoon. Uh, another one for you, you're getting ready maybe perhaps to take a vacation and you're trying to decide where to go. You've got beach or mountains, both great options. Show of hands, you're a beach people, like put my toes in the sand, okay? Mountains, give me a waterfall. Okay, that was like literally almost 50-50. I'm a beach guy myself, you know, I grew up at the beach, still love the beach. Here's uh, one other one is, what about when it comes to your coffee? Do you drink it cold with ice, iced coffee people, you know, you, a few of you, okay? And then just, just give it to me hot, give it to me maybe black, the way it's intended to be. Now, just real quickly, um, I just want to say that, that I have never considered divorce in my life with, with my wife, Diana, except for one time. And this is the story. And so we, uh, we were at home, uh, I don't know, a couple years into our marriage, we made coffee, and she pours her creamer, stirs it, leaves it on the counter, and then I'm like, okay, cool, she'll be back like in like a couple minutes. And three hours later comes by, she takes it, and she takes a sip and is like... Oh, yeah, this is so good. And I was just like, whoa, 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 How do you know you're married to a sociopath? They prefer lukewarm coffee. Dead serious, you enter our house, you will see my wife make coffee, leave it on the counter for hours intentionally. This isn't an accident. And that's where, like, the creamer starts to separate a little bit. Super gross. I still love her. You know, we're still married, but it's, you know, it's got me questioning things. <laughs> coffee is one of those things, hot or cold is great. Lukewarm, not a thing. Spits it out of your mouth, right? And that's what I want to plant in your mind this morning. And if you will, we continue uh, wrapping up this teaching series through the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation. Jesus is going to use this phrase to describe these Christians, to describe this church. And perhaps you've heard the phrase before, well, they're a lukewarm Christian. What does that mean? 
Well, it comes from this text that we're going to dive into this morning. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. Revelation's the last book of the Bible. It's super easy to find. If you have your sermon notes, you can get those out and follow along with us. Uh, You can find those on the app as well, too. We've been going through this series talking about these letters that this guy by the name of John received from the Holy Spirit is writing to these churches in which Jesus is kind of given a review. He's kind of telling them, here's where you guys are on track, some of you. Others of you, we need to clean it up a little bit. We need to tidy it up. And each church has been given some some condemnation, perhaps, and some have been given some thumbs up. Some are a little bit in between. And today, we hit church number seven, the church in Laodicea. This is how it begins. In chapter three, picking up in verse 14, it says these words. It says, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, right, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness to put salve on your eyes so that you can see. It begins with this idea, Jesus says, he is the amen and he is the ruler of creation. Jesus is setting up this idea that what I'm about to say next is is true. You see, we end all of our prayers with that phrase, amen. It's a word that means let it be so or let it be done. And Jesus says, not only what I'm about to say, let it be so, let it be true, but he says, the power and the authority that what I say has the ability to do that is because I am the ruler of creation, aka I am a source, I am a cornerstone of everything that you see, smell, touch, I am the foundation of it all. Jesus is saying, I'm the personification of the truth of God, of God himself. But what we see about the church in Laodicea is Jesus coming after them. He's saying, yeah, but you guys have this self-sufficient attitude. You guys really don't think you need me in your life, nor does it seem to think that what you do actually matters. And so Jesus begins by saying, you're neither hot nor cold. And this is where this comes from. They gave me this fancy new screen today, so we're going to try it out. Here's a map of the ancient church here of, uh, of ancient Asia. And so look at this, guys. I get to draw on it, okay? You, you, this could be so fun. Okay, so over here is Patmos. This is where John has been receiving his letter. This is where he's been writing. He's receiving, and he sends it to the seven churches. So all the churches are all spread throughout, but here is the church in Laodicea, okay? Everybody tracking so far. There's a city here called Herapolis that was known for having hot water, Fresh hot springs. I've never been in one, but I hear they're amazing. Like if you go to Iceland, you get in the hot springs. It's just a thing you do. And that water would have to travel about six miles to the city of Laodicea. Now close to Laodicea, on the other side, was this city called Colossae. And they had, were known for their crisp, refreshing, cold water. It's a hot summer day. They've got cold water readily available. And their water would also have to travel to Laodicea. Here's this city who has everything in the known world except for one thing. 
They don't have hot water, they don't have cold water, they have lukewarm water because by the time the water gets to them, it has gotten warm. And so Jesus is playing on this idea. He's saying, just like the city you live in, just like the world around you, you are neither hot nor cold. Now, sometimes we hear this phrase and we think what Jesus is saying, you are cold, I wish you were hot. And that's not what Jesus says. He's saying you are neither hot nor cold because both hot water and cold water have purposes. They are both useful. Hot water is said to have been medicinal. It is soothing. It could uh, uh, heal aching muscles or something like that. Cold water has the ability to be refreshing. And Jesus says you're neither. You're not useful. You're not hot. You're not cold. And so I will spit you out of my mouth. Your translation might say I will vomit you out of my mouth. You ever have food poisoning before, right? And what feels the best after you've gotten eaten something and you're just like, oh man, this just needs to get out. And then once it kind of get, you know, maybe a few projectiles in, then you're actually feeling a little bit better. That's what Jesus is saying. He said, you are so not useful to me. I will vomit you out of here because I can't stand to have you in my body. But the church in Laodicea says, yeah, but Jesus, we rich. He's like, what? <laughs> now, the word rich here probably means three different things. Number one, probably means financial richness. It's super interesting. In the year AD 70, there was this earthquake that completely destroyed the city of Laodicea, completely took it to the ground. Rome swoops in and says, would you like an imperial, uh, an imperial uh, handout to kind of rebuild your city? And the city literally says, nah. We good. We're going to do it on our strength, with our brains, with our dimes. We're going to figure it out. And so much so, they say that they built this city even stronger or better than before. Then they become the actual bank for Caesar and become the first place that mints money in the ancient civilization. Now, Laodicea then were so proud of themselves, they created their own currency in which they stamped the phrase, we did it ourselves. We're rich. We can handle this. We got it. The second thing that their richness would have probably been uh, akin to was their medicinal advancements. It was said and believed that they had a salve that they created that could actually cure blindness. But the third thing that their richness would have been, we don't need anything, they say, is because they had a drip. And for those of you who don't know what that is, that's clothing. That's what the cool kids say. I don't know. They had this fine wool black clothing that you couldn't find anywhere else in the ancient civilization. So they're literally saying, yeah, but Jesus, we rich. We got stacks. We got advancements in, in, in medicine. We look fine wherever we go. And Jesus says, <laughs> okay, let me tell you what you actually are. In my mind, what I see based on your heart, you're not rich, you're poor. You're, you're not dressed well, you're naked. You can't see anything. You are actually blind. Translation, you have forgotten where all of this has come from in the first place. James is the half-brother of Jesus. He writes this book called James in the New Testament. In chapter 1, verse 17, he says, every good and perfect gift comes from above. You see, as the Laodicean Christians are probably touting what they have done, Jesus is probably looking at them saying, oh, so since you're relying on your brain what you have done, have you forgotten where that mind came from in the first place? You're talking about all the sales you're making out in the marketplace, but have you forgotten who gave you that personality that could woo people over? Have you forgotten 
the traits that I have naturally given to you as a sovereign creator, God. Those passions, that ability to solve problems, you fill in the blank. Have you forgotten where that came from in the first place? You see, a full wallet does not equate to a full heart. You don't believe me? Let me let's have a little test this morning. I'm going to give you a quote. A quote's going to come up here on the screen. And I want you to think, okay, who would this possibly come from? Who would possibly say this quote? What would maybe be going on in their life to say these things? And then I'll reveal to you who it is afterwards. Here's the quote. This is what the quote says. This is a lot of times I think I get very frustrated and introverted. And there's times where I'm not the person that I want to be. You ever been there? Why do I have all that I've accomplished and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I've reached my goal, my dreams, my life. But me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be all it's cracked up to be. Who would you think would say this? Maybe what's going on in their heart, in their life, who, who, what type of person would kind of give this, kind of sounds like a downer. They maybe have accomplished a few things, but maybe, you know, they're, they're trying to figure out life. They're a little searching lost. Maybe they don't have a whole lot. It's this man right here. Right after he won his third Super Bowl, Tom Brady, the greatest quarterback of all time, long live the GOAT, he's back. Yeah, you can boo, that's cool. Let me say that again. Right after he won his third Super Bowl ring, he gives that quote. Robert Kraft, the owner of the Patriots, goes to Tom and says, Tom, I saw that quote. What's the answer? He simply says, I don't know. Ten years later, so about a year ago, he was given that same quote and said, have you figured it out yet? And he said, I'm still searching. A full life, a full wallet, a fullness of whatever you want to define as wealth in this life does not equal a full heart. And what was true of the Laodicean church could very potentially be true of you or me. That we could have everything at our fingertips. But Jesus might be very far from our lips and from our hearts. It's this grave warning that wealth can rob you of the presence of God. It can. I'm not saying it will. But wealth in a variety of ways can potentially, maybe if you are not careful, rob you from the presence of God. And what I need you to hear me here is that it's not wrong to have a good job. It's not wrong to make a a good living. It's not wrong to to upgrade your house. It's not a sin to have a car. That's not what Jesus is saying. But it is wrong for wealth of any kind to sit atop the throne of your heart. There's this story in, in one of the Gospels, a couple of the Gospels actually, in which this young rich ruler comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, Jesus what do I got to do to inherit eternal life? Big question. We all ask that question, hopefully at some form or another. And Jesus begins by laying out the Ten Commandments. Here's all the rules of what it means to be someone in my kingdom. And he says, check, 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 check. Done all of those. Jesus is like, wow, okay, you're a good little boy. That's great. He's okay, you got to do one more thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. It says at that point, the man looked down and walked away. But the story doesn't end there. This is how it continues. Mark chapter 10, verse 23. It says, so Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? 
It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed, and they said to each other, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. The goal here is not to guilt you. Hear me. The goal here is not to shame you. The goal here, though, for all of us, myself included, because by the world's standards, if you are sitting in this room, you are wealthy. It's to step back and ask ourselves, is it worth it? Am I chasing more of me and the world's wealth in this life or chasing more of him? Am I chasing what this life has to offer or investing eternally of what is to come next? That's what Jesus is getting at with the church in Laodicea. It's an unwillingness in some areas to maybe not sacrifice. So what's a lukewarm Christian? I could define it for you this way. So a lukewarm Christian is one who's made Jesus a hobby, not their life's work. Jesus becomes that thing you do when the schedule allows. Jesus becomes that thing that, you know, when the time is right, when there's nothing else on the calendar. Jesus becomes that thing when everything else is all in place, that's when, okay, that's, that's a lukewarm Christian. Now, I'm not saying you have to be a full-time pastor or go into ministry in order to follow Jesus. But following Jesus must be done his way. The answer is not to become vagabonds or hermits or couch potatoes and just say, all right, God, I'm just going to fully rely on you for everything but it is to desire him above all else. I think sometimes we try to receive salvation, thank you, Lord, for that, while also holding and saving as much of the world as we can. We really, really like the fact that Jesus sacrificed his life on the cross for us. But would we actually be willing to return the favor? Jesus is addressing the church in Laodicea. He goes after their wealth, and that's it. He doesn't go after their deeds. He doesn't go after perhaps if they were facing persecution or enduring or not. He's not going after their, their programs. The only thing, he says, the only thing I'm after is what you seem to trust in this life more than me. And that is your wealth, what the world has to offer you. And what was true of them is very true of us, that Jesus will always be after the thing or perhaps the things that sit on the throne of our hearts other than him. He will constantly be applying pressure to say, is it all that it's cracked up to be or not? Because where we are unwilling to sacrifice is a really good indication where we feel like we don't need God, or perhaps worse, where we don't want God to intervene. Well, God, I'll give you my Sunday. I'll give you some of that over there. I'll definitely surrender those things, but not that. I like control over that. I like what I have to hold on to there. But God will never settle for less than number one in your life. This is how the letters to the seven churches concludes. We're going to jump back to Revelation chapter 3, verse 19. He says, those whom I love, I rebuke and I discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with the person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on the throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
You know, don't, don't we really like our, our coaches, our, our, our teachers, our parents to show discipline? Well, they would have won the game, but they got a little undisciplined at the end. He's a pretty good teacher, but sometimes he doesn't really know how to control the classroom. She seems like a really good mom, but sometimes I really just think she lets her kids walk over her. But when the words rebuke or discipline get brought into our faith, our relationship with God, we're like, whoa, 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 whoa. The audacity that a God of love dare rebuke me, dare discipline me. Who does he think he is? But the truth is, because God loves you, he will rebuke and discipline you. The most unloving thing that God could do in your life is not to bring rebuke or discipline or conviction. The most unloving thing that God could do is leave you be. Let you continue to live in your sin. Let you continue to live in your brokenness. Let you continue to live in your destruction and just say, I don't know, you do you, boo. You figure it out. Hopefully it all makes sense and you find what you're after. That's the most unloving thing a loving person could ever do. And God says, because I love you, because I have more in store for you, because I don't want you to encounter more pain or brokenness or hardship in this life, I will bring rebuke. I will bring discipline. I don't know, but sometimes, I don't know. I think we want a secret valentine more than we want a loving God. We want God to just tell us how good we look, how much he loves us. Oh, your hair just smells so wonderful today. Instead of a God that will bring rebuke. It's harsh. Yeah, but it's love. Love is hard, is it not? Love takes effort. Love means I care enough about you to tell you the hard stuff, to try and get your attention, to try to put you on the right track. It might be hard. It might hurt you to say this. It's not going to be easy, but you need to hear it. The most unloving thing would not be for God to try to get our attention or to show us his disdain for the things we do. The most unloving thing God could do would just say, you figure it out by yourself. So why does God bring discipline or rebuke? It's because he loves us. It's because he loves you. It's because he desires a way of life that is greater than what the wealth of this world has to offer. Jesus, if you are listening, if you listen to his word, if you're open to the spirit, he will bring rebuke and discipline out of love and that is the only way to cure that lukewarmness. You know, it's kind of like raising a dog. Our dog at our house, um, if, uh, some, some of you are aware, he wears diapers. You can laugh. It's, it's, it's really embarrassing. And that's because when we were raising our dog, his name is Kobe, named after the infamous great Kobe Bryant. He uh, just didn't get disciplined. And so we had him and we would never really like tell him no or, or take him out to go potty or whatever it is. And so now he's grown up, he's like 12 years old and he still does his business whenever, wherever. And so we're like, well, I don't want to clean up your, your, your stuff. Either stuff. I don't want to clean up either stuff. And so we put him in a diaper because we failed to bring discipline. Because we failed as dog parents to teach him, you cannot do this in my house. You do it outside or you're staying outside. But then he gets fleas and he brings the fleas in. So it's like this super like, what do you do here? A failure to discipline is an opportunity missed to express love. Discipline and rebuke are not the same as rejection or hostility. 
So what does it look like for a lukewarm Christian? The lukewarm Christian might say, I believe in hell. Yeah, I don't want to go there. But are there tears or effort to snatch souls from that path? The lukewarm Christian might say, oh, absolutely, I look forward to heaven. But there might be a tendency to worship this life a little bit more. The lukewarm Christian might say, I believe in the good works and the things that we as Christians and and churches are called to do. But you know, I'd rather just remain a little anonymous so no one holds me accountable and actually have to do those things. I'm just content with just saying those are good things I know I ought to do, but I don't want to actually have to do them. The the lukewarm Christian might say, I believe in sin and grace, but I'm not actually going to let Jesus transform my heart. Ultimately, The lukewarm person, I think, says, I'm in this faith thing. I'm in this Christian thing. I'm in this church thing for what God can do in my life, not what I can do for him. That's where I think Jesus says, but dude, I gave you everything. I died for you. I've given you my spirit. I've given you the greatest mission and purpose that this life has to offer. And you want to sit back and really wait if it's worth it or not. Can you trust me? Do you believe me? And this is where I think, like, this is the question that I wrestle with. I was preparing for this message. This question kept coming up into my mind, and I had to check myself. But this is the question. If you want to think, okay, am I a lukewarm Christian? Where am I? Just ask yourself this one question. It's this question right here. Are you in it for the presence of God or presence from God? It sounds like a Christmas message. I get it, but you know what I'm saying. Are you in this faith thing for the presence of God? to enjoy him, to know him, to study his word, to, to follow Jesus, or are you more into it for what God can do for you? You see, Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, I will stand, I will knock at the door. If you let me in, I will come in. We will sit, we will dine, we will be together. It is a sign of intimacy. It's interesting because the ancient Roman law had this, this law called engario, which meant a Roman soldier could show up to your house, they could knock, and say, hey, give me a meal. It is your legal obligation to feed me. And they could also say, oh, by the way, I need to go to the next city. You're going to carry my stuff about a mile or so down the road because I just need a little bit of a break. If they showed up to your house, knocked, you had to do it by law. And Jesus says, I will show up at your door. I will knock, but you must let me in. You are not obligated to let me in. You must choose to let me in. And as we wrap up this series, this is where I think we need to truly ask ourselves. I found myself asking this. God, am I in this faith thing because I truly love you? Or am I in this faith thing because I I like what you could do for me? Moment of vulnerability. Even as a pastor, I struggle with that. I love the presence of God. I love reading God's word, but there are also times where, like, you know what feels good sometimes? This. Over 200 faces looking at you. You've got their attention. Don't screw it up, but you've got their attention. When people don't know where to go, where to turn to, they come to me. Oh, because I'm so important. Because I've got it all figured out. Spoiler I don't. I think we can all say there are times where I'm really, God, what are you going to do for me? We get into this ROI Christian mindset sometimes. Well, God, I'll be generous, I'll tithe, but I kind of expect my business to start going up and to the right a little bit. 
God, I'll give some of my, my, my time or my talents to serve, but when the time comes, you better maybe, maybe shift that thing that's not going right in my life. Well, God, I will, I will willingly join that thing, but who's going to scratch my back in return? Are we in it for the presence of God or presence from God? That's the real question. And this is where we wrap up this series, seven weeks and I want to wrap it up with one simple word. Is how would you answer the review of your faith? If Jesus wrote you, left you a, a Google review, how many stars would he give you? What might he say you're doing well? What might he say you need to work on? We're all there. By the grace of God, through faith, we only receive five stars in eternity because of Jesus. But if he were to say to you, here's my review of you, what would your answer be? And I want my answer. I want our, our, our body of Christ, our local community, our answer that when Jesus convicts us, when the Spirit leads us, when we see what the Word of God says, we don't deter from it. We answer with one simple word. Amen. Let it be so. May it come true in my life. May it come true in my group's life. May it come true in the life of our community in this church. Let it be so. We don't have to worry if God is mad at us or angry at us because his love is made perfect in our weakness. We don't have to worry if there's a spot waiting for us in heaven because Jesus has paid that debt. But what would our response be if Jesus said, here is your review? Is it going to be, yeah, I don't really know if I agree with that. I'm not really sure I really want to do that thing. Or can we stand boldly in confidence in the presence and the power of God because he is good, he is loving, he is merciful, his justice has been, been taken care of to say amen. Let it be so. Make me into that creation. I want to do those works that you have laid out for me. Let it be so. The God that we worship, the God that we celebrate is going to bring you rebuke and discipline if you listen. He will convict you. There are seasons, there are times in which you will probably feel like you're neither hot nor cold. And Jesus says, I need you to be useful. There's souls to be won, there's work to be done. I need you to be useful. What will your answer be? It's me. I pray and I hope my answer is always going to be that one simple word. Amen. Let it be done in my life and hopefully yours as well. Would you pray with me as we continue to worship the majesty of the Lord Jesus this morning? Father, we lift up your name this morning because you alone are worthy to be praised. God, we are rich, we are wealthy, we, we have everything that the world has to offer right in front of us. And we know you love someone who works hard. We know it's not wrong to own a business. We know it's not wrong to, to, to buy clothes or whatever it is, but Lord, may you sit atop the throne of our heart. May you be the only thing that we chase and worship in this life. Let it be so. 
Let it be done in our lives today. It's your name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen.